So hello and welcome to another episode of the Two Medics podcast. My name is Imran Lasker. I'm a consultant radiologist. Hi, I'm Thushigan Wardena. I'm a cardiology registrar, so specialising in intervention. And uh, this week we do have a special, we say this every week, we have a very special guest, but we do have a special guest this week. And actually, in truth, the first time I noticed yourself was on TikTok when I was doing my uh, silly TikToks. I noticed someone else, another doctor, was clearly better at TikTok than me. So do please introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nagat. I'm an NHS GP. And yes, I do make TikToks as well, mainly about women's health, because that's my specialism. But I'm also the resident doctor on BBC Breakfast and This Morning. And I've got my own radio show on a Sunday morning with Three Counties Radio. Um, so I'm still spinning lots of plates at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> You're setting us up quite nicely. But I mean, tell us a little bit more, more about yourself, um, Nigat. So, I mean, obviously people would, may have seen you on TV. Um, they may have seen your TikToks, which is far more wholesome than the content I make. And uh, I think Therusha started TikTok from what I, I saw as well. And, uh, you know, um, your, your one's got a, like a clear message. Do you, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? So, yeah, I mean, I've been a, a GP for, God, this is coming up to my, I would say, 12th year. And one of the things that I started doing a lot was women's health. So I work in and around Buckinghamshire, but we do cater a lot of South Asian communities. So I'm bilingual, I speak Punjabi and Urdu. And a lot of the women that I look after uh, don't speak English as a first language, particularly in Chesham, High Wycombe and Slough. Hmm. And when the pandemic hit, um, one of the things that I noticed was a lot of my patients were saying, oh, Dr. Raff, I don't want to bother you. And women's health things, particularly menopause, was something that women don't come forward with anyway. And it gets missed a lot. Hmm. Um, and about in 2019, I put a tweet out because I was finding that a lot of women uh, that I was talking to were being put on antidepressants when the 2019 NICE guidance was to put on HRT. Mm, so yeah. that sort of snowballed into this huge piece that the BBC were doing called Wake Up to the Menopause and asked me to come and talk about my experiences because usually in the South Asian community, we don't talk about this. Mm. So that when the pandemic hit, I just thought, I'm not getting my patients contacting me. We all sort of changed overnight how we were consulting. It was video and telephone consultation consultations and then I thought do you know what I'm gonna my sister uh, said uh, let's make some TikToks and it was mostly 16 year olds who were dancing and <laughs> showing their midriff I don't have a midriff to show <laughs> and I'm, I'm gonna talk about women's health stuff because I actually saw another doctor in America mm. Dr. Leslie who was doing all sorts of just medical stuff and uh, Dr. Curran who's now a dear friend as well Mm. And uh, he's got over something like 4 million followers now. And I thought, well, I'm sure that I know it's much it's for younger audiences, but I'm sure somebody will probably want to know about, you know, the symptoms of perimenopause. Mm. And it just went like wildfire. And I did it in different language and it just went absolutely crazy. And uh, I actually genuinely had a colleague once when I started making it because it wasn't something that a lot of doctors did on social media. And he sort of said to me, it's really unprofessional, Dr. Arif, that you're oh. making TikToks. Oh, no wow. Way. Mm. wow. Yeah, so it came with like loads of positive stuff, but then also mm. a lot of negative stuff at the same time. But mm. for me, it's more about just trying to get good evidence-based medical information out there, which is yeah. understandable. Mm. And make it more moving fun. Moving with the times, yeah? Just moving with the times. Like, you've just got to get, as you say, the message out there. And so different people respond to different types of media or see different types of media. What kind mm. of dinosaur-like thing to say? I think that there, there is a real, those that engage with social media and those who are still frightened by it, and not frightened by it and that there's a huge fear, but there's um, 
an, a lack of understanding because you do worry about what you say and is out there in the public domain and it can be taken in different ways. But mm. also there is this sort of concern that we're talking about slightly taboo subjects. So I'm talking yeah. about vaginal dryness. I'm talking about breast examinations. I'm talking about, you know, menorrhagia. I'm talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yeah. But mostly the reason I'm doing it is because it's really I actually use it as a learning tool for myself. So mm. when I've made that video, it sticks in my head. <laughs> yeah, fair I'm, enough. I'm so selfish. <laughs> like, I've learned this. And uh, then that goes in my CPD and it's like, yeah, box <laughs> Fair enough. How have you found, because you mentioned that some of those subjects can be kind of difficult to broach. How have you found then engaging with a kind of South Asian community and uh, with kind of getting this oh my goodness it's been a real sort of a real mixed bag so when i first started i think even women didn't understand why i was putting all this up so i had pakistani ladies who would come on my especially tiktok because that's where so because i started off on twitter nobody was really engaging because i really wanted the women to come and engage with me i started off on instagram and instagram i find it's quite difficult as well but tiktok i could look at a camera screen and just roll. It's what I do in surgery every day. I can just like reel off what I'm talking and then put some subtitles on and then put it up on a video. Mm. And um, I got some who were saying, oh my goodness, now it makes sense. All those symptoms that I've been having and all my blood tests are completely normal. Uh. And then I would have some women saying, this is so shameful. You're a hijab-wearing woman. As a Muslim woman, you shouldn't be discussing this out in the open. Mm. This should be done behind closed doors. And then men got involved. So I did one. Uh. One of my TikToks was about bacterial vaginosis. Okay. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Good. But... <laughs> yeah. I bet you didn't I'm expect talking... me to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, sorry. Sorry, everybody. No, 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 no. no it's good. good. This is what we want. This is what we want. Yeah, go for but it. But I was, I was discussing you know, the the difference between bacterial vaginosis and thrush because a lot of it can be done uh, at home or over the treatment counter, and just knowing the difference as well. And mm. for some women, honestly, it really destroys their lives because it's horrible when you have that. Mm. And so uh, the that got shared a lot because obviously I'm talking about vaginal discharge. Um, but also it, I got a lot of pushback from my community because it was so shameful. And unfortunately, mm. oh. when we shroud something in medicine with shame, you don't mm. learn. And mm. for me, I just thought, you know what, that's even more reason to do it because clearly mm. there are people who really appreciate this content. But that's the thing. Like, um, I, I mean, obviously, Mathrusha and I, we both partake in a fair bit of social media these days. I think there's a few bits of being a doctor. Like, being a doctor is not just a scientific role. It's being able to communicate information and, you know, getting people to understand what you're talking about. And, you know, someone like yourself, who clearly is quite good at sort of um, communicating information and getting people to understand. I mean, that's that's kind of so core of being a doctor that sometimes that gets unfortunately looked down upon because you're using a different medium. I mean, it doesn't have to be a one-on-one -one conversation. It could be a conversa conversation between one and many people using whatever medium it may be. I, I think that you've hit the nail on the head there because as doctors, we only talk to other doctors. I, I know my circle of friends are mostly doctors. My husband, Harlan, mm. isn't a doctor. He's a solicitor. So mm. I'll say something and I know that He'll, he'll say to me, can you explain that in layman's term? Mm. And no more did we realize the fact that there's a disparity between health education and public's understanding of health education. Mm, so vaccines, yeah. for example, the amount of misinformation that we had just understanding how viruses work. Mm. And so I always thought, do you know what? As a GP, I have the most public-facing role as a clinician because mm. even consultants, you don't, you don't have access to your consultant as readily as you would do your GP. 
Especially as a consultant. Are you really a consultant, Imran? Yeah, I don't know. They, ha- they haven't found out yet. Don't look that up. Yeah. <laughs> but any of my patients can walk into my surgery and say, I want to see Dr. Arif or any of our GPs there and then. And if they're willing to wait, then we will have to come out of our room and face them. I mean, that's mm. the nature of our job. And so if we can't be able to educate our patients um, about simple things that they can do, before they come and see us or understand how viruses or infections work, then I think that we're not really going to be advocates for our own workload either. Because if mm. you, because I find that if I say to a patient, you've got a sore throat, these are all the symptoms, leave it, this is what you should be doing. But actually they can look after themselves and they don't come back to me so quickly. So it's mm. not like day two, they'll come back to me after maybe seven days of a sore throat or they've noticed white spots on their tonsils or they're really having a high temperature which isn't coming down with paracetamol or ibuprofen. And then they'll pick up that call because that's where actually now you need to escalate that up to the GP. And the resources are just at the minute, as you know, Mm. with us as GPs, we are a resource and we're a finite resource because there's not enough of us. And if you escalate everything up to the doctor, then it gets really problematic. So educating people what to do before you come and see the doctor is, is absolutely paramount vital. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. I mean, I mean, that's it. Seems like you're you're juggling quite a lot, don't you think? I mean, you're you've got what three kids? Three kids. Um, you're doing yeah. the whole TV thing. You're doing the a GP as well. Um, I mean, it sounds like you're spinning a lot of plates, which kind of brings us on to our first topic that came up on Twitter this week. And there's Xander, who has been uh, brought up multiple times. And he goes, um, how does one get good? And I think this is quite a good one for you, Nigat, to maybe shine, shine, shed a bit of light on this. How does one get good at being a trainee or just in general, I guess? I just feel so overwhelmed by trying to keep all the plates spinning, logbooks, portfolios, teaching, operating, service provision. Many have suggested going less than full time, but the thought of extending further is daunting. And, you know, I'm just going to say that you know as you get as you kind of progress through your career logbooks get replaced by kids uh you know wife uh, you know, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you know mot you know there's so many things to get up to <laughs> i'm just joking around but um yeah like uh what, what do you guys think i mean training training is tough right how do you how do you i mean how do yourself nigga how do you spin so many plates the the biggest thing is is you have to remember what your core values are and what your principles are and i've learned in a weird way in a hard way what my core values are and i've been on a real journey because i feel like i'm a bit of a lone wolf out there even on social media like i see you guys and i always think you god you're so cool oh my god <laughs> No, but like, I don't really... The Venom Cup says thank you. The Iron Man Cup says thank you. (laughs) See, that's so cool. I can't believe you have those cups. I have nothing like that. And I was was thinking, I've had a bit of a weird journey because when I started off, I I left parts in London at medical school and my my purpose in life was to become a gastroenterologist. That Mm. was it. I was going to do interventional stuff. I was going to be a hospital consultant. Bossing yeah. it down the corridors. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I actually sat the MRCP part one and then I did um, my actual training. And when it came to F2, I realized the life of a med reg was not a life that I wanted. And mm. I can't do nights either. I'm not good with my sleep. So mm. if I don't get sleep, I think I'm clinically unsafe. So that was it. <laughs> <I> was <decided. laughs> and, then, and then 
So the colleagues who can do lights and still function, I, I find them absolutely amazing. Yeah. And then um, I, I did general practice for six months in Slough, and I just had the. And I think this is where trainers can really make a difference about your views about training, uh, mm. and, and, a, and a post as well. Because I had a lovely trainer, Dr. Gerdip here, and in fact, I'm still in touch with Gerdip, and we had mm. a, a conversation a couple of days ago, mm. and um, he really sort of enticed me to come into general practice. And it was the fact that there was so much variety. Mm. And when I became a GP, as I was, I qualified and then did my training, got all my appraisal stuff out of the way, and then was a salaried GP. And then I was ready to extend, me and Khalid were ready to extend our family. And we had our second um, son, Gassim. And Gassim really turned my career upside down. So not, mm. not his fault at all, but no, yeah. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, but yeah. Gassim was about six weeks old when um, he was really severely jaundiced. And um, we found out that he had a rare liver condition called bile salt export protein pump deficiency. So basically what that means is that he, he, can't, he couldn't churn out his bile salts out of his liver and so the bile, the bile was knocking off his hepatocytes. So we met the consultant at King's College Hospital. Mm. And I think this is another thing when you're a doctor, the only doctor in the family as I am, I, I'm very relaxed actually, because I sort of liken sometimes as doctors, you're that, um, the captain on the Titanic. So if the captain <laughs> on the Titanic panics, <laughs> right. and, and you know, he starts screaming, then actually the whole ship is going to start screaming so i think, uh, I think I, the titanic sunk anyway but anyway carry I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i'm quite i'm quite chilled and relaxed and so i i had my custom had his bloods and i got a phone call from king saying his i and i is seven can you just make sure that you don't drop your child and i was like yeah that's fine Whoa. i can do that yeah and oh, wow. took okay. him into kings and they said look he's got this rare condition he'll need a liver transplant because he's got a 50 50 chance of having um, liver cancer and that was it that was my world sort of upside down I spoke to my team at um, uh, at my surgery at the time and uh, I said this is back in 2016 and I said look Mm. uh, my son is going to be really sick I don't think I can come back as a salary GP uh, especially six sessions that I was doing at the time and I've got a four-year-old at home as well and um, they were like that's fine and so I resigned my post because I knew I wouldn't be able to cope with the pressure that we had at the time to look after him because he had so many health needs as well Mm. Um, and after that what happened was that I put in a request to leave to step away from my training as well because I was first five I was still in the first five years of my of my registration as a GP and the appraisal office said to me that if you don't uh, partake in appraisal then we're going to consider you and deem you to be um, un, unsafe clinically unsafe mm. and so we're going to have to temporarily hold your license and I just thought oh my goodness the license that I've worked so hard for yeah how did oh, you, dear. how did they do that? Did they, was it like in an email or how did you, as I was just kind of wonder about that whole kind of like what was going through your mind and then they just send, it was like an email or something, what happened? Yeah, it was an email because I wrote <laughs> to them and said, um, this is what's happening because appraisal is really big, right? You have to yeah. get, get oh, obviously the pandemic has put a bit of a dampener on the appraisal system, but hmm. every year you have to have 50 bits of evidence you have to, yeah. and I'm, 
I am really particular about my appraisal. I am that goody two shoes that will make oh, sure God. that I have a, an audit. I will have an MSF. <laughs> hate people like you. Hate people. Oh like no, you. the oh, worst. No. So that actually makes me really laugh because Jamie, who's on Twitter, he loves MSFs and he has a thing about appraisals. So um, really, actually, I, I'm very OCD when it comes to appraisal as well. And oh. um, it was just an email, really, to say that this is what's going to happen because you're. I think any anything that's whenever they put anything that's in medicine as clinically unsafe, hmm. then they do put the rule book out you and, and they don't take into consideration there are special circumstances. And at the time I had these skills set as a women's health GP and I was doing coils as well. And, and um, there's a private practice who said, look, we'll take you on and you can help set us our, our private sector hmm. uh, with women's health, because we know that some women want to come and see you. And so I stepped away. I didn't stop doing NHS work ever. I, I still locumed. And then I stepped away and did private medicine. And that allowed me to carry on with my training and my work and my learning as a GP, but with the not the pressure of a, a salary job, um, which brings so much pressure as a GP. And that allowed me to then look after my sick son. Mm. And I guess that also, in a way, in a, in a in a fortuitous way led me to having the skill sets that I do now to be able to confidently talk about the subjects that I do on media because the guidelines you can't rock up on telly and talk about something without knowing the guidelines mm. so I mm. do a lot of background research and I know sometimes tv doctors well I don't I hate being calling myself as a tv doctor <laughs> but <laughs> but doctors that you see on telly um there's a there, there is slightly if I can say this to anyone that might be listening a bit of snobbery Mm. about oh they're on tv but actually um they we work i work and i know the ones that do um, media they work incredibly hard and keeping up to date with the guidelines up to date with the research knowing how to put it in a translatable way to the general mm. public who don't have medical health education on mm. their sort of radar so mm. trying to trying to cut through that is is a real skill and, and i think that's sometimes where you try and find the balance between work life and home life but it always comes down to is what's the most valuable thing for me and for me it's always going to be my kids first and my family when they're happy then I go off and do other things mm. yeah fair enough I'm sure there are going to be people listening out there who are wondering how your son is now um so this was back in 2016 that you guys were going or going through that how, how are things now yeah um is it I talk about it openly now, but there was uh, about a year to two years where I didn't ever talk about it because um, I think that it was the hardest time that I'd ever had as a mother, but also as a clinician. And mm. um, the thing is, is that you can't help being a doctor to your parent, to your child. Yeah. Mm. And although you try and sort of be really logistical about it, but there was a point where you almost felt like you were up against the system because Gassim needed a liver transplant and being from an Asian, South Asian heritage, um, the donation rate in black Asian ethnic minority communities is re relatively low. The law has changed since last year. Now there's an opt out system before you had to opt in. Mm. So now everybody's considered a donor, but you still have to share your wishes with your family. So even if you carry a donor card and you tell your fam and you don't tell your family members and you pass away, the, the donation team will always consult your family members. And mm. if they are from a thought that actually I don't want to donate, um, which a lot of the South Asian communities, the elder generation are, then they're going to override your wish. And that's why there's a real amazing charity called Share Your Wishes. Um, you don't have to do anything. You just have to literally follow the guide and, and follow what they say and um, share your wishes about mm. what you'd want. But Gassim, 
we waited for him. He was on the transplant list when he was about four months old, but we waited and waited and waited until he was got about 11 months old and we still hadn't found a donor yet. He's been positive and you have to make sure HLA and also genetic pool that matches as well, so less chance of rejection. Mm. And he got severely sick and he did get liver cancer. And that led him to uh, becoming urgent, urgent on the list. And that was it. That was when I became extremely desperate. And I said, match me, match, you know, you, mm. you can look at family mm. because there was a conversation because what they do is that when somebody's really sick um, to make sure that they don't get sicker and be, and also stay fit for the surgery is that they put them on a, um, a respirator and in ITU and in general, uh, uh, just so that they can reserve the body as much mm. as possible. So, cause it's a, it's a good eight to 10 hour operation. Mm. And an, an 11 month old who's tiny yeah. at the time and he was starting to go into organ failure and once that happens well then you've got no option to consider palliation and I just did not want that conversation to be a palliative yeah. conversation I remember actively walking away from a wow. ward round going I can't discuss this right now mm. but I was I'm a doer and I'm a planner and I said well I'll happily donate and they were like but you know that if we do a live donation the, the chances of death on the table are high. I think it's one in 200. And just to put that into context, for breast cancer, I think it's like one in 800 because we're so brilliant at treatment mm. for breast cancer. So I'm 32 years old sitting with my husband talking over DNAR forms because I had to then explain to my husband, who's non-medical, going, this is what a do not resuscitate form is and this is why I'm signing it and this is why I don't want to be resuscitated because my worst case scenario was that I come out of surgery and then my husband has two of us to look after, my son mm. and me, because of various complications. Mm. And um, that was really surreal. But we got really lucky in the 11th hour. There was a little boy in Leeds who'd fallen off his bike and he had a, a, a hit his head and had a clean brainstem injury. And so the family were approached and they donated um, their child's organs, Garson being one of them. And they saved you know, seven other lives as well with their son. And you never think that you're going to be ever in that position where you're going to need to, A, save your child, but also that you're going to need to have a transplant in your life. And it happened fairly early on to us, and especially when you've got two children, mm. a, four, a healthy four-year-old as well. But for three years, I just, I felt, I, I say they were my wilderness years because I had no <laughs> clue what I was doing in regards mm. to my work, in regards to being a parent and where mm. I was heading in life. And it just felt like this black hole. Um, mm. that I was in but to anyone listening I'm, I'm sure loads of people are going through really dark moments and the only thing I can say is is that um, they, they are fleeting now I look back and I think do you know what three years is actually nothing that was mm. fleeting mm. now he's happy he's healthy he still has three monthly checkups he had to have some chemo because they found some mediastinal lymphadenopathy and I enjoy so many things with him, and in fact, he makes TikToks with me, and he no. comes on TV. He comes on. He comes on a lot of my TV shows as well. So if I'm broadcasting from home, there's many a times Garson will jump in and just say hello, and, and he'll, he'll probably want like a jacket potato or he'll want oh, yogurt dear. from a fridge. So normal kid stuff, yeah, and yeah. I think that that's the beauty of of life really because mm. if you put the people that value you and you value them at the core of your work then mm. it's actually far far more happier but yeah thank you for asking Felicia. he's doing really well 
I mean, this is what I think. Um, uh, there was this, uh, a silly reference, but there was a. I used to watch Lost, which is a show that didn't really go anywhere in the end, so it's pretty lost. Um, but, <laughs> that but, was um, a dog's dream or something. Oh god, I, don't, I didn't want to go into it. I lost hours of life watching that show. But um, one of these episodes, we're talking about. It was kind of really weird, but it was about having a constant. Everyone needs a constant, to survive whatever situation they're in. And I still remember that episode to this day because I always think to me myself about my constants. Like, um, what are the constant themes? What are the constant things that give me strength to get through? through my day through my work and all that kind of thing and so yeah like you said um, Nigat and I think from a lot of us it is going to be our family and friends and I think doing the jobs that we do it can be that can get shrouded you can kind of forget what the most important thing is sometimes because when you've got all these things to get up to I mean I'm sure you you know you probably had work after you and you know you had all that situation with your appraisals and all that it, it sounds like a really uh, really difficult time I mean I can't even remotely re- relate I mean I think my father, as I've mentioned before, he had stage four lymphoma. And I do remember that during that time, things got very difficult for us. And he was in chemotherapy and he runs a property business on the side. And I was running around doing that. And I went to an ARCP and they were like, you know, why, you know, why are you not performing the way you should be? And I said, listen, you know, my, my father's sick. He's, he's got a stage four lymphoma and I've ended up having to take off, take up a lot of his um, property work, which there's a whole load of tenants saying they can't switch on the heater and all the rest of it, evidently. And, um, you know, they turned around and said to me, well, it sounds like you need to have a conversation with your dad and figure out what's more important to you. And I thought, excuse oh me, goodness. do you want to ha- do you want to talk to my dad? Do you want to say that he's not important? Like, what is that? And they were like, well, you know, you just need to make a choice between medicine or, and that. And I think for a lot of people, um, that's a, a, not a completely inaccurate choice because without your family, without your friends, another consultant told me that the family and friends that you have are the petrol that you need to continue to do what you do. And, and that's that's exactly what it is that you, you need your family and friends. If you don't have them, then you're just a robot going into work and coming out and you're not going to be any good. Part of being a doctor is being relatable and having your own life. I think it, uh, that's really right. And I think this is where the, the, our system of training has missed a trick. And we always say, well, why is there not a retention of doctors? And it is mm. purely because of that, because when you're. Like I was uh, genuinely threatened to take away my license. I mean, that's, I can't mm. practice without my license. The thing that mm. I've worked extremely hard for, um, slogged through medical school for, slogged yeah. through F1, F2, and I've done a, a year of general practice. And mm. now you're going to take this away from me because I'm unsafe. When I'm not unsafe, I mean, I, that knowledge yeah. doesn't suddenly go. Yeah, exactly. It's like riding a bike. <laughs> you just yeah. literally get back on the bike. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and I, think that, I think that the, the difficulty is, is that we need that level of um, understanding within our structure of training. Uh, mm. And that comes from people around you. And also having the confidence to step away. I remember when I was stepping out at the time from you know, NHS, although I was doing locoming as an NHS GP, but going out to do private work, it was it was really, back in that time, it was really, honestly, my colleagues around me were like, oh my God, you're going to do private work. So, you know, that's, mm. that's not, you're stepping away from your education and your training and the ethos of, I mean, I, I love, I, as you know, I'm a huge advocate for the NHS and my social media is full of all my work in the NHS. I still work in the NHS and I believe in the NHS because there's no way that me and my husband, as great salaries as we do have, he's a lawyer and I, I'm, a, I'm a doctor, there's no way we could have given him the treatment uh, if we had to pay for it. There's no way I could have afforded a transplant and the aftercare mm-hmm. at all and the amazing mm-hmm. care that he's continued to have. So um, we need... We do need healthcare professionals, but the the training and the systematic way it's set up is that very laser fare. Well, just make sure you're a body that turns up and does the ward round, or a body that turns up and sits in a surgery, and that has mm. to change. I think. 
yeah, yeah totally. I think, so. I think that leads on quite nicely to some other tweets, which basically echo the, the sentiment of how much people give. So there's a tweet from Sabrina Bhattacharya, and she was saying, Doctor in need here. Anyone in the field got any advice on contacts in moving from surgical training to non-medical professional, e.g. pharma, AI, consultancy? I'm seriously burnt out, and I can't cope with surgical tra- the surgical environment uh, training environment much longer and then this is we were actually looking at a quote tweet by uh, jazz Sierra, which said completely understand this i've researched the same very recently hashtag burnout st3 applications constant hurdles never having enough papers presentations numbers it's exhausting and i don't know if i have it in me for the next 10 plus years i love surgery but it doesn't give much back I mean, these lodges need to go take a swim in a cold water, don't they, Thrushan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cold water sorts out your burnout, guys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, now that, that kind of also relates to uh, a bulletin where it says the benefits of cold water swimming is swimming in, uh, in a freezing lake, the antidote to modern life burnout. So, yeah, what do we think? Do you know, there is some there is some research that actually cold water swimming is really good for you. So um, if you look at perimenopausal women, they no, honestly, because I'm an okay, I, can, I can see a TikTok coming up now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to get in a swimsuit. There are, things, <laughs> um, there are certain things that I just won't do, Imran, not even for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, I was going to make a joke about x-rays and seeing through you, no, but it's okay, I'm not going to go there. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> but, uh, but there's I'm an ambassador of Her Spirit, which is a, an organization, a community online platform set up to get people more active. I mean, look at me. Yeah. I, I need to definitely get more active. But there is a lot yeah. of evidence to suggest that cold water swimming is good for you. It's really exhilarating and really can help women manage flushes. So there's a group of women who have menopausal symptoms and they do it. But whether it actually treats burnout, I think that's a bit out there, don't you think? There, I know. Some of those stuff that I... I hate to use the word quackery, but I know Imran, you sometimes do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's a lot of quackery out there. And unfortunately, I have to deal with it with my parents. Uh, genuinely, I've said this uh, before. Like, if you told my dad that, oh, you've got a bit of a headache, have an ice cube, he'll do it. If I said to him, listen, you know, to, to cure this, you've got to stand on your head, he'd probably do it. But as soon as I say, take a pill. No, 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 no. I'm not taking <laughs> yeah, that pill. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. You know, it's, um, which is really weird because he kind of made, you know, he kind of really encouraged myself, my, myself and my sister to go into medicine. And then when it comes to medicine itself, I'm not interested. All right, fair enough then. But yeah, just in case anyone wanted to look back, we're referencing an article. It was in Bulletin, the magazine for members of the Royal College of Anaesthetists, and it was on the front cover. So the benefits of cold water swimming for burnout. I kind of thought maybe it might be like the antidote for li- literally if you're bur- like if you're on for literal fire, then obviously. Like, <laughs> having, but, but not actual life burnout. Isn't it? If you're on fire, just get a hose. Or- yeah, exactly. Yeah. But from a friend, not your enemy. Don't go to your enemy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Could you imagine if you went to something you didn't like? Is like, oh, which host is that? What are you talking? Oh, it doesn't work. Sorry. Oh, my foot's yeah. on the host pipe. Sorry. I don't know what's going on. It's a terrible day. <laughs> Bad, but worse for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, i mean training is hard isn't it i mean but the thing is what i find quite interesting and i'm going to relate to another tweet by shivani misra is that now that i'm a consultant uh, i really realize how annoying i must have been to consultants as an sho and registrar and this made me really i mean you know yes it is difficult and for those of you and by the way just going back to that point i always say and like we said before think about what you enjoy and as long as you're enjoying that then carry on going uh, you just keep doing what you're doing. And as soon as it becomes all bad, then think about doing something else. Because medicine's fortunately one of those places where you can reinvent yourself uh, quite easily if you wanted to. But um, but yeah, looking back now, uh, were you guys annoying trainees? Were you were you difficult to your to your seniors? 
I was Monica. I was like, yes, yes, yes. I know. Uh, <laughs> free apples oh, no. for the teacher. Like, there you go. Oh, <laughs> oh. I was, I, no, I don't, I like to think I wasn't annoying, but I think I probably was. And the reason is, is because um, I came to the UK quite late. And I, I often talk about this. I came when I was nine years old. So mm. I didn't speak English. And so, um, uh, but when I, and I didn't, I never went to school in Pakistan either because girls don't get sent and blah, blah, blah. And mm. then when I came over here, it, 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 I got thrown into the school and um, the teachers were really keen to teach me English. And so I first learned English when I was in the UK. And I, I just suddenly found this thirst for learning. And mm. I was just like, I'm going to learn everything. And then obviously being from a South Asian household, when I got to about seven, 16, 17, my mom and dad were like, oh, we might have to marry you, have an arranged marriage. And I just thought, what's the longest career? What's the longest yeah. education? <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where can I go to where it's the longest degree? And I just oh, thought, right, dear. medicine it is. Uh, <laughs> I bet you didn't say that in the interview, though, did you? <laughs> yeah, well, can you imagine? I just uh, trying to avoid getting married as well, long as possible. <laughs> no, but honestly, I don't know about you guys and your reasons for going to medicine, but at the time, I mean, there were lots of different reasons, and it was more the fact that I just wanted to be my own person and things yeah. like that. But it was also that I just didn't want to get married early. I wanted to like learn stuff, and education is a really good excuse to leave the house yeah, as yeah, a woman yeah. in our culture. Hmm. And so I left the house and then did my training. And then it was just this extra thirst for learning. Hmm. And I'm one of those people that I get really nervous as well. And I'm quite smiley. And hmm. so, the, and if you see me smiling a lot, it's basically because I don't know my stuff at all. <laughs> there you go. We've got the scoop. We've got the scoop. <laughs> so I would sit in my, I would sit with a consultant or something and I would just be smiling away and they would think that Nagat's really engaged. And so just ask me more questions. Oh, God. <laughs> and so I think I was that annoying person just because I was smiling, didn't know my stuff, just looked engaging, managed that the consultant just asked more and more stuff on the ward round. And the other guys would just be like, oh, shut up, Nagat. <laughs> oh dear wow you're one of those uh yeah, yeah you, you people like you made my life difficult man you know turning <laughs> up and knowing yourself turning up in the first place why just just go do something else <laughs> um no it's funny it's funny if i think about the reasons you go into into med school uh through show i can't remember we didn't do any placements together did we like were you, i can't remember no. when you were like um a very nerdy type of uh, a medical student you were in the library though i remember you yeah, know a few yeah. times we you know the old time i turned at library you were there Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which can't have been a coincidence. You're you're always in the library, so that must mean you're a bit a bit nerdy. But um, it's interesting you mention uh, dating and all that kind of thing because it does relate to another topic that came up this week. Um, from Fehmi, uh, she said, "So bizarre when women pretend, uh, men, sorry, when men pretend to be doctors on dating apps. Uh, like, how long did you plan to keep this up, sir? The wedding day? Um, mm. And the reason I mention is because actually, I know it sounds really embarrassing, but um, when I became a doctor, I thought that's it." Now, now it's going to be easy. Like, and then uh, none, none of it was very forthcoming. And then I thought, okay, you know what? It's a personality issue. What I'll do, I'll go on to singlemuslim.com and I'll write doctor all over the place. And I was just getting rejected left, right and center. And so when I saw this, I thought, what? What do you mean it works? You're going to pretend to be a doctor? Come on. You went, you went on Muslims, you know, was it Muslim? Single Muslim. Yeah, single, single Muslim. Muslim. Com. A bit too early. You needed a pandemic because now doctors are hot. Like, the coronavirus has made anyone with a doctor in front of their name, even if they, no offense to clinical psychologists, but even if they put a doctor or PhD people put doctor in front of their name, that's it. They're hot property everywhere mm. and everybody wants it. And, and I have seen that a lot, actually. There are loads of people who use. 
I think it's more the fact that it's an attraction because you think that we're really brainy individuals and we're really clever, but actually we just end up recognizing patterns really well and we know mm. we know how to research or just work really, really hard or stick yeah. to an education. Because if you look at it, medicine is just recognizing patterns, isn't it? Do you think mm. do you think there's an element of the whole you know like when they're doing the clapping thing it's kind of reminiscent of like soldiers going out to war and there's that kind of heroic thing as well yeah whatever. Mm. Yes. like oh. so now in mind what you need to do is put another profile up on, like, <laughs> t- on tinder or something oh dear oh, you know my wife listens to this she's not really happy about it. <laughs> i did i did tell her you know technically i'm quarter married so you know you never know <laughs> Um, joke joke everyone please don't hate on me i'm joking i'm joking <laughs> um yeah it's uh it's crazy um how much things have changed isn't it um uh you know since the pandemic for for everyone isn't it like our praises have changed our work-life balance has changed uh and etc etc and um I think attitudes towards doctors have clearly changed. I mean, apparently now, if we went on to Tinder and et cetera, we might actually do quite well, Thrusha. So I was going to say, Thrusha then made a really good link, um, and he was saying about how, and this is the bit about the intelligence curve. So um, mm. was the tweet about Dunning-Kruger. Uh, yeah, that's Thrusha right. Thrusha made a really good link with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, Thrusha, do you want to tell us about this, um, so this idea about becoming an expert? Yeah, so... Um, Basically, there's this tweet that I think sums up kind of Twitter. And um, uh, it's basically about those people out there who have ideas in their head and it makes sense to them. And therefore, that seems to kind of outweigh any of the evidence out there. And someone described it um, in the tweet as... um, Comparing outcomes with mechanistic speculation, which is a love, like a twee little term, which basically describes something that makes sense in someone's head. So there's a tweet from Michael hmm. Mike Albert, MD, and that was on the hmm. 7th of January at 7, 10 a.m. It said the compelling, it's a compelling hypothesis until you see it repeatedly rejected by various human outcome studies. And we've seen that so much, haven't we, with the pandemic? Like people kind of, oh, you know, like Trump was like, oh, you know, you can inject bleach because that will like clean you from the inside. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just completely on the surface of it and then with any examination you know that it's nonsense but it's just gotten more and more difficult um with the it, pandemic yeah exactly it's um the idea of knowledge and you know when you think you're qualified to voice an opinion i mean that's that's twitter isn't it in a nutshell and it also relates to another tweet we've got on our list saying a problem with anesthetics exam not i'm taking a dig at anesthetists um as rock hard as they are a few too many gases exit with them with the belief <laughs> that because they sweated blood to get through they're flown to the end of the dunning kruger curve when in fact the curve has just moved with them uh, <laughs> and that is so true you literally think you're an expert or everything and, and and social media has shown us that you uh, and, and and this is where people say oh but anti-vaxxers do this a lot and it's even people who aren't anti-vaxxers but they've gone on i don't know the whatsapp group or youtube or facebook and read something and now they think they're experts and how vaccines work yeah. and mm. I, i've come across that constantly because i put if i put anything pro-vaccine obviously being part of team halo um in the pandemic we've been doing a lot of work around misinformation and then mm. I'll get loads of people who will send me, but have you looked at the yellow card scheme? And it's like, but you don't understand the yellow card scheme. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you brought up Team Halo. Do you want, I mean, you want to tell us about this? Because, mm. I mean, there, there was another tweet. I mean, there is a TV show on Netflix that's going around uh, called Don't Look Up. 
And um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's a lot. It's a bit of a satire, isn't it, about um, something that's clearly happening, but due to political and social whatever reasons, people don't really want to believe it. And so yeah. you, you related to that, didn't you, nigga, about um, Team Holo and your work? Yeah. Around. So um, in obviously, I was already on TikToks to making loads of content about women's health and just tackling the misinformation around women's health because there is. I I almost liken it to the fact that we've already gone through our issues because there's so much stuff about HRT out there. Um, mm. that women just feel that it's not for them or it's only for five years and that's it. And so I was tackling that already. And then Team Halo, which is a, a UN initiative backed a group of doctors um, who was set up to try and tackle misinformation because as the vaccines got rolled out, there was just so much misinformation out there, um, mm. mainly from anti-vaxxers, but also people who just had genuine questions about yeah. wanting to know more about the COVID-19 vaccine and mostly mm. within ethnic minority communities as well. I think the if you remember back in January um, 2021, when the vaccine first uh, was being rolled out nationally, um, about 89% of people from black, Asian, ethnic, minority heritage were saying, no, we're not going to have the vaccine. So this was really a trying to engage them because it, we're only safe if everyone is vaccinated and has their immunity. And uh, so when I started doing it, um, it was really interesting because first you learn how global healthcare works and how communities work and also you look at how you can tackle misinformation and also the 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 trolling i had so much trolling every single time i put up any tweet about how the vaccine works even now i mean i put one I, on monday i was on bbc breakfast talking about pregnant women and how they should be vaccinated get, mm. getting the covid19 vaccine and i put that on my on my uh, tiktoks and i just got loads of abuse lots of abuse mm. from people just wow. saying how can you be sure are you going to be liable for this mm. and the thing is now i'm sort of hardened to it and i'm used mm. to it but team halo are so it was so relatable watching that movie don't look up because in that there's a point where leonardo dicaprio's character um dr randall mindy says to another fellow astro uh, astrologer who works in the white house just look up there's something <laughs> happening to the earth that's going to destroy us and she just looks him dead in the eye and she goes yeah there's not enough clinical and scientific evidence and i was like oh my god, my god. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. this is this is us and also so reminiscent of dr S steve james who's literally stood with a press junket around him saying to sandy jared there's not enough scientific evidence for the amazing. vaccine and i was just like how this is playing out in real life so it's satire yes it is and it's a worth it's a movie worth watching but i yeah. feel like for the last two years i've lived that life yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as part of team halo and we've also yeah. got our own whatsapp group as well as there's a 70 of us around the world and we have a whatsapp group and we share ideas and information stuff so it's really interesting so when brazil i mean i think brazil crossed over a million deaths due to covid wow. And so mm. we had conversations with the doctors in Brazil and they were sort of posting and things like that on our WhatsApp group. And it's heartbreaking. So for then someone, a fellow colleague to go on national telly to the health secretary saying there is not enough evidence. It just, it, it made me livid. I just thought, how can, how dare you? How dare you do this? Mm. I think, so if, for those of you who want to watch it, it's on Netflix. So, um, and it's called Don't Look Up. It's got a really star-studded cast. So it's got Meryl Streep, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Jonah Hill. Um, mm. Interestingly, you know, when that was written, though, it was from the perspective of global warming and climate change. Mm. 
But it's so funny how relatable it is to COVID, isn't it? Like um, there was a bit in it where um, some of the characters are kind of implying that you're a lot mas- you're like not masculine enough if you looked up. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And it just reminds me of like, you know, there's kind of memes out there that kind of imply that if you're not you know super strong and like healthy that, you know, then you don't need a vaccination. And uh, I met this guy in the gym who implied that basically that you're mm. a weakling if you've got a vaccination. And I was like, oh, there's so many themes in there that you could just apply to COVID. Um, amazing. I mean, no, obviously, I mean, the stars got involved. I mean, I, I know this isn't the tweet, but uh, Nicki Minaj famously said about how having the COVID vaccine caused a friend's cousin's friend to end up getting, uh, you know, his balls swelled up. Um, <laughs> I hate it when that happens. I hate it when that happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, that old gem. <laughs> exactly. And it's just like, no, mate, he's probably just got an STD. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine your reply. Yeah. Uh, no, mate. <laughs> Exactly, but it's it's crazy because that movie is it works a lot on social media and how people would spread this myth about this. Uh, um, I mean, it's not a, it's not a, a secret, but it's a meteor that's hitting going to hit the earth, yeah. and so mm. you know, look up at this meteor, and it's literally people are writing the same. We saw that we saw that happen in real time. Stupid mm. tweets, and mm. from big accounts, people have huge, huge followings. Um, so if Nicki Minaj says that the COVID vaccine caused her friend's cousin's balls to swell up, well, then people are not going to, people are not going to, you know, people are not going to have the vaccine. And if you've got, you know, somebody like Nicki Minaj saying, look, it's going to affect your fertility. Can you imagine all those young people who are still sitting in the fence who will say, well, I don't want the vaccine now. And we've mm. genuinely had to tackle those questions. Will it affect my fertility? And it's like, no, it won't affect your fertility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. Like it, it just seems as though, yeah, like people don't want to listen to the to experts in the fields. And I think I don't know what it is. I mean, like you, you mentioned um, Nicki Minaj, right? So she's a singer. People listen to her songs and they feel like they know her. And then on some level, they feel like they can trust her. And then when she says something, it means more than someone who's actually trained in what they do. But we did see um, over the week that there was a uh, doctor. I can't remember his name, and he he talked to Sajid Javid, didn't he? Oh, yeah, about, Steve James. Um, yeah. Yeah, Steve DJ. James, that's right. Yeah, and he was saying that, you know, the the COVID vaccine, he's got his doubts about the COVID vaccine. There's not enough evidence. And that became quite a bit of um, a bit of a thought, like a, a bit of a problem, not a problem, but um, suddenly a whole lot of anti-vaxxers put that person on a bit of a pedestal because they're now representing their voices. He's now representing the voice of the uh, anti-vax oppressed, as it were, some people are saying. Um you know, and the and the issue really is, is that fine, you know, someone like Nicki Minaj, you can't expect someone like her who, you know, does what they do for a living to have what I would say valid opinion on things they're not trained in. But when you've got a doctor who's coming out and saying something like this, you know, who's by all means qualified to make a make a very valid decision, making a decision that kind of goes completely against the grain of um, of everyone. Then um, it, it becomes it becomes a little bit problematic. Like you start to wondering, like, what are they after? What what's going on uh, with this person, right? I mean, we what do you guys think of all this? Like the um... well, I mean, it's kind of echoed with Djokovic as well, right? So Djokovic mm. is also a problematic character, and the kind of reaction to him, and you know his his toils. You know, he wanted to be exempt from having a vaccination and go and play in the Australian Open, and then the kind of hand wringingly 
kind of um what's the word like the mealy mouth tweets about him just uh they make me sick like there's this tweet from mm. oliver brown that was like increasingly uneasy about how Djokovic is being treated whatever your views mm. on the man he was approved to board that plane well that's the question really whether he should have even been approved in the first place but anyhow and now an mm. eight-hour interrogation a glorified detention center and global ridicule this doesn't feel like rules are rules. It feels like a show trial. And the thing that really mm. got me about this is he's basically describing the the experience of like a refugee and how they're very, these people are very happy for asylum seekers to be treated that way. You know, a glorified detention yeah. center, detention center, which is essentially what what are used. But Djokovic is he's he's too important for that, is he? Is that what? Well, there's this uh, there's this um, thing that you know we are. I mean, we see it all the time where there's privilege, wherever there's privilege attached, it doesn't really matter. But if you have that, you're above the rules of everybody else. And this is the the prime case. I mean, you almost wonder whether Dr. Steve James, if it was uh, if it was somebody who wasn't a consultant who said that, would it have been blown up? But he is in a place of privilege. I think mm. you can't deny that if you are a consultant or a GP or a doctor, you do have that pedestal and that platform anyway. Djokovic the same. Nicki Minaj the same. You're on a pedestal where people will listen to you and take you seriously. Mm. I don't mind people like Djokovic and Dr. Steve James not wanting the vaccine. Actually, that doesn't really bother me as a doctor. I am a vaccinator. I've been vaccinating my patients throughout the pandemic um, in our communities. And I really do believe that this is our only way of safeguarding and getting out of the pandemic because vaccines work. We've seen that time and time again Mm. for many other conditions. And we have now over two years worth of evidence to show that the vaccine is safe. Mm. The difficulty I have with individuals using their platform is the fact that they are spreading actual misinformation. So, for example, Djokovic is like, well, my body, my choice. But actually, mm. you're, you are going to be a spreader of viruses. So, and that got proven because you tested positive for COVID, hasn't had the vaccine, and then went out and met children when he was testing positive for COVID. Mm. And the same with Dr. Steve James. He said, I've done a, an antibody test to check that I've had COVID and I've got antibodies. However, that's not robust enough evidence uh, to suggest that he's going to be um, have those antibodies for long because yeah. we know that if you if you allow the virus to go through a population unchecked um, and so this is the herd immunity debate that was started right at the start only a third of people will actually form antibodies that are long lasting but also mm. it's the transmission if you have the virus and you've had the vaccine your rate of transmission is going to be reduced and I, I was just thinking as a mother who's had a child in ITU, dealt with anaesthetist on a daily basis for three years because he was intubated mm. and he went in because he needed a liver transplant. Imagine if you as a mother or as a, any relative that took your loved one into hospital, knowing that your G, the, the clinician treating them hasn't had the vaccine that protects transmission. And then your loved one died of COVID from that individual mm. because mm-hmm. they, ha- they had asymptomatic um, uh uh, incubation going on at the time i would be livid how can you mm. justify that even as a clinician i don't know about you but Rushi, as, as a cardiologist if you had someone who came in just for a, i don't know a, a, an interventional stent and ended up dying of covid how would you feel yeah it's awful isn't it i mean mm. i think it's it's kind of i think it's right i mean the whole idea that 
I think people kind of seem to, their toes seem to curl at the idea of mandatory vaccinations, but that's something that we kind of needed when we joined medical school for hepatitis B, yeah. think, you know, so mm. I, d- I just didn't really see the problem in that. But, and it's funny, you mentioned that Djokovic said, my body, my choice, because that the people who seem to be championing that for him anyway, don't seem to be that bothered when it's women talking about other issues, right? And yeah. uh, mm. and Irish yeah. Aisha, she did that point. Um, if Serena or possibly any female player had behaved in any way near close to how Djokovic has. I wonder how the story would be playing out. I wonder, though, mm. if all these people, like Nigel Farage so and whatever, come out, whether they defend Serena. Definitely not. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Nigel Farage stepping out to help, what, an Eastern European? Is that, that's what essentially what's happened here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. that's just We've unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, Medlife Crisis, our, our friend Rohan Franz did a very interesting video on um, Novak Djokovic. And actually, he came out with the point, look, when you're looking at someone like Novak Djokovic, he's not he's not a normal individual and he's not going for normality he's when you say to him something like you know on in general most people are going to be helped by this treatment he's not bothered he doesn't he doesn't want that he's trying to be extraordinary and so whatever it takes for him to be extraordinary in his mind is what it will take for him to win grand grand slams and then he's got that sort of personal bias now that by oh you know he put a bit of bread on his stomach and knows he's now knows he's gluten-free making him healthy which means he can win the next grand slam (laughs) you know those are difficult things to argue with i mean if he says to me look imran i know what you're doctor i know you've done all your stuff but i put bread on my stomach and now i want a grand slam <laughs> yeah. i'll be like well you've got a point there i mean yeah. I, I don't win grand, i don't win grand slams here but the point is like he's got his own way of doing things you do you yeah isn't that, that, those kind of rules yeah don't apply to everyone it yeah, can't absolutely. do yeah. isn't that like a lesson on like correlation and causation there right and stuff, mm. I guess, with the bread mm. thing. But like, there was like a famous UFC fighter who would uh, famously drink his own urine, but that didn't seem to catch on, um, right. thankfully. <laughs> I don't know. Why, why is no, he drawing the line a- there? <laughs> <laughs> I've just taken a note. Try own urine. Um, okay. <laughs> you must have seen some very um, uh, uh, kind of interesting ideas being a GP, you know, um, Nigat. Like you must have had some uh, odd, uh, odd ideas being presented to you as you go through your oh, your treatment and stuff, right? Constantly. Yeah, and I, I, and I love them actually because I laugh a lot with my patients as well. And so some of <laughs> some of the odd, odd there have been. I mean, personally, when Gartan was really sick, I. I wouldn't say odd, but um, obviously being a practicing Muslim, faith does play a huge role in how our perception of healthcare should be delivered and what remedies work. So uh, when Gatim was really poorly, I would get a lot of women who would be saying to me in my community, like I'll, I would still take him to the mosque for Juma prayers and things like that. And mm. uh, they'll say to me, oh, he looks really yellow, but go to this um, feed, so a bit like a witch doctor, or go mm. to the, read this uh, thing, or, or go and travel to this mosque and this place and have this uh, um, ayat, which is basically a prayer from the Quran, read that and blow it on your son and he'll be fixed mm. tomorrow. And, oh, I, wow. and I just thought to myself, do you know, it's when you, and, and a lot of people do have that, and I see that with women's health particularly, um, they feel, especially when they're going through their menopausal symptoms, they feel that it's a, it's a test from God. You know, if I mm. pray hard enough, if I, if I meditate hard enough, if I do this hard enough, then I'll be a better person. And I genuinely had a woman stop me in Sainsbury's and she said to me, the reason your son is poorly is because you've done something wrong in your life. Oh, no. And I, couldn't, wow. I couldn't believe it. And, that, and actually, weirdly enough, it didn't make me angry at the time because mm. I just thought that's her perception of healthcare. That's her perception of, of illnesses. And it comes straight from God. And mm, and yeah. that has been fed to her because we have a, a structured faith, a religion, which means that undeniably you can't question stuff in faith. 
which unfortunately mm. women being highly illiterate in Pakistan, 95% of women in Pakistan are still illiterate or they're trying to make that better. But if you come from that sort of generation where you believe that everything comes from God, then your willingness to engage with treatment is really different. But then mm. again, I've had other people who are completely atheists who will completely sort of have weird and wonderful things. Like I have various crystals in my room, Dr. Aris, and those <laughs> crystals will heal me. And I'm like, yeah, that's why. <laughs> but it's, uh, when, it's when, those, when those beliefs impinge on you actually getting medical treatment. So people who will revert to crystals or herbs or, you know, wind therapies and things like that to treat their cancer. I mean, that, that's mm, horrific. That, yeah. that is something that we shouldn't be endorsing. Um, but as a GP, I love listening to weird and wonderful things that people try because it actually is. some of them work. Yeah. Oh, no <laughs> way. <laughs> some of them oh. do actually work. So I think um, I think when I was doing my A&E job back in the day, there was a patient I was seeing. I think it was a patient, and I was talking to them, and they seemed to know a lot. And I was like, man, you're, you know, and I kind of silly, sillyly assumed they were a doctor or something or a medical professional. And then I think near, near the end of the consultation, I was like, sorry, what do you do again? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm a spiritual healer. That's why I know so much. And I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's how you get the big money you, you convince me you know what you're talking about that's pretty much what you're doing I think one of the things as a doctor always is to be open-minded and that's why I really do believe that um, you cannot uh, just have this linear view of the, the nice guidance says this and, and this is yeah. what I'm going to deliver to my patients so in medicine mm. in general practice and I know that you guys must practice this as well we have something called ideas concerns and expectations yeah. so mm. when a patient comes in um, it I, that's the first thing I ask. What are your ideas about what I've given you as a diagnosis? It might be diabetes. What are your expectations that I will do for you? And if they say, yeah. I want you to do everything, Dr. Arif. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> you have to work with me. What is your belief about this? And what are your, you know, what are your expectations of how, what the treatment will give you? And then they were like, oh, Allah sab kuch karega. So it means Allah will do everything. And oh. then you're just like, right, okay, I better start right at the, at the basis of why they have diabetes. Oh, dear. Oh, no. because, yeah. because this is the thing, because as GPs, we are going to be dealing with chronic illnesses. And the consultant, no offense, Tarisha, as a consultant, actually, Imran as well, I know you're a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, I just don't think it was. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> I take as a compliment. I take as a compliment. Carry on. But, but the consultant will start a treatment for a patient and then the patient will come back to the GP and actually not really understand or co mm. the compliance is a huge issue and mm. I think that we've got to be open-minded that people will have their own ideas. cultural things mm. I mean ideas and concerns I remember when I went into labor for my first son my mum had this root it's like a booty so it's like a root that she put in water mm. so that it would stop me from having severe labor pain Wait, what, what happened to the root? It would just it, would it have to be in the room or what? I don't understand. No, it it just she had it in her kitchen in her house while I was on the labour unit, and then she she phoned me, she phoned me, and I said, "Mum," and she goes, "Oh, how's it going?" And I was like, "You know, it's eighteen hours. I'm exhausted. I'm still in labour." And she goes, "Don't worry." I was speaking to Jabi. <laughs> Uh, she was like, That means that the root is taking up the water, so therefore sucking out your pain. And I was like, Mum, that is ridiculous. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> How's it doing that remotely, though? Like by bleaching yeah. or something? Like, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> 
But I think it gave her uh, comfort that she was yeah. doing something, and I think yeah, that yeah. I can't take that away from her. So I just that's so yes true. That's mm, so true. Like true. when when my son was sick, like um, and I literally would have done anything. I would have done anything. Mm. And I remember, like, I phoned my parents up and I was like, "We need to like go and like make offerings to monks and whatever." And my dad sent me this video, and the video was in like Sri Lanka of like some aunties that they've gotten to like get some doves and they free the doves, and they're like, "These mm. doves are being freed to give merit towards Aaron, who's my son." And I was like. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Like what? But, <laughs> but I, I don't know. How is that playing in? I don't know. I'll claim that. Yeah, I'll claim it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's so uh, But you know, it's a desperation. I mean, this is the thing. Like you know, I've got a family friend, and this is pretty much what actually. Um, obviously, my father got sick, so he retired, and then he got sick. And I had a family friend, and they retired, and they got sick, but they ended up having really bad rheumatoid arthritis to the point they were debilitated, and now they need carers and stuff like that. And she kept telling me, "Listen, you know, Imran, I thought when I was going to retire, I was going to go travel in the world, and now I'm kind of stuck." I'm, I'm very debilitated and then she started asking about you know cannabis and you know how and that apparently that can you know fix your joints and I, I don't know where you read that and she goes you know apparently you can put the cream on it just you know magically fix your joints apparently but they don't want to give it to me and I just thought do I tell her that you know that's not how things work or do I just leave her to it and I thought you know what I, I think I'm going to leave her to it because um there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of value to hope and Ooh. wherever it may be and, you know, and sometimes in those moments of desperation where you desperately want to get better, people are going to will, will deter, willing to turn to anything, you know, absolutely mm. anything, a, a root and water. To, because, I mean, I guess on some level, you know, your mother cares enough that she's put a root and water and et cetera. Okay. But there'll be people doing a lot more, you know, than just put a root and water and, and things like that for the people that they love or for, for themselves to get better. And so when it comes to healthcare, people are willing to almost throw anything uh, at it. Unfortunately, sometimes uh, anything does not include seeing the doctor, um, mm. which we see all the time, don't we? Mm. Um, but I mean, you know, being being a medical professional, we do have, I mean, that's one of the privileges of being a, a medical professional. You get to interact with lots of people. But one of the things that I think Roshana mes, uh, mentioned in one of her tweets was, off the back of one favorite game for surgeons, ED anesthetists, here's the next for all medics. What's the one, one diagnosis you're most fascinated by that you've actually seen and why? And I thought it was quite nice. It just reminds you as to why, you know, in the middle of handing in those forms and, you know, speaking to this person and having having the radiologists have a go at you and the cardiologists are being mean, um, <laughs> you can stumble across a, a wonderful diagnosis that kind of makes you think, wow, this is why I came into med school. This is this is kind of, this is it. Uh, do you guys have anything that, I mean, I think Therusha, you had something, didn't you, that you, yeah. you mentioned? I quite like, I mean, it's, it's not a ni- nice diagnosis to make, but it's kind of interesting because, you know, we were talking before about kind of things that, uh, are not are having an open mind on it, and things that perhaps were a uh, cultural, a cultural phenomenon. So I'm talking about Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, where when um, a person is exposed to like a really stressful situation, there's a dump of adrenaline, and um, that can mimic an MI. So they come in with ECG changes that look like an MI, and it's called Takotsubo because there's a characteristic appearance of the heart on an echo. So Takotsubo means uh, octopus pop. And the the left ventricle looks a bit like an octopus pot, which is a Japanese uh, this Japanese word because it's wow. for that. But um, it's interesting because I, I remember hearing stories of you know people in like fairy tales of people like dying of a broken heart and just being and just kind of thinking of that as a fairy tale, but actually knowing that it's mm. a real phenomenon with a real term. So in that, I mean, often the situation whereby you end up diagnosing it is kind of really sad, like um, you know. Um, a person getting chest pain at a funeral or something along those mm. lines. But in terms of kind of linking into something that's a kind of cultural term, I thought it's kind of an interesting diagnosis to make. Do you guys have mm. uh, examples? 
Nigat, do you have any um, good, uh, not good, but you know, like an interesting diagnosis, etc.? Nothing that comes to mind, actually, because I was thinking about this and I was thinking what diagnoses. And a lot of our general practice diagnosis is going to be run of the mill. Unfortunately, it is going to be mm. like the, the favorite consultants like you guys who will then be like, ah, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> but then the GP could be like, I called it. I called it from yeah, way back yeah. over here. <laughs> I claim it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Because we're limited to doing tests, you see. So sometimes mm. it's it's about sort of just... And I actually will say that a lot of the time in general practice, I use my gut more than anything. Mm. So, mm. And I know there's a really good tweet a while back and you guys covered it in another podcast about how practicing medicine from a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's when you actually find out. And then you're just like, oh, this is really interesting. So but I think the most interesting is when you pick up a cancer and you hadn't thought that there was a cancer mm-hmm. those are really those are really um uh, lovely and also for me it's more about sort of picking up signs and symptoms that patients hadn't really wanted to talk about so i mm. obviously i do women's health so i get a lot of women who come and speak to me and then in hushed tones will talk about how difficult it is having sex because they have mm. vaginal atrophy and i'll be like mm. you don't need to talk about it in hushed tones mm. we can mm. treat this and then Three months later, they'll come back going, I've had the best sex in my life. And I'm like, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I did my GP stint, which is, you know, as a as a trainee. And I remember a patient came in and the presenter complaint was when I brush my teeth, I vomit. And that was it. And we were like, okay. But as it transpired, it wasn't about the brushing the teeth. She was having a drinking problem because she'd moved to somewhere new. She never didn't know anyone. She's feeling very sad. And so actually what began as brushing teeth and vomiting every time after brushing her teeth had nothing to do with dental hygiene or anything. She was drinking way too much and very, very lonely. And that's what I found quite, I mean, if I, I did actually want to be a GP for a long time. Um, and that was one of the things that I found so interesting that like what they present with can be completely unrelated yeah. or, you know, they're not coming, they're not coming forth. It's exactly what you said. They're not entirely forthcoming. Yeah. It's known as the hidden agenda. So the patient actually comes in with one thing and then they really want to suss you out as a doctor or, or find oh. out. And then you, you find out actually the hidden agenda of what their visit is. And I've mm. had that many times where patients are so embarrassed um uh, to talk about something and they might have one consultation with me and then book in for another one two weeks later and then another one it's on the third consultation that you Mm. get down to the fact that actually there's a depression or like you say an alcohol problem or drug problem or Mm. that they're going they're having suicidal thoughts or for example they're having a real dysfunctional sex um at Mm. home Mm. and that's Mm. when they want to talk about it because i think that what we think is embarrassing isn't actually embarrassing to us as doctors because that's our bread and butter does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, um, so uh, we you just have to wait for the and uh, those are the most satisfying cases as a GP when you mm. like get that hidden agenda. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I, we had a case where there was a so there were twins, right? Two sisters, very young, and one came in with stomach pains, really, really bad stomach pains, finding a very different, and then they decided to like, vomit and not eat properly, and they did an X-ray, and the the stomach just looked weird, and then it turned out one the the other twin was losing their hair. So like, what on earth is going on? And it turned out one twin was eating the other one's hair and that kind of all clogged up inside the stomach and then ended up being um, oh, the issue. Wow. Yeah, and I, yeah. Actually, I made a TikTok on it. There'll be, there'll be a TikTok somewhere because the scans were just, I mean, I've never seen anything like that. But that's what I like about radiology. Sometimes it's a little bit about um, lateral thinking and looking at like clinical history and trying to relate it to what you're seeing, which I think is a lot with the, most of medicine, I guess, if you've got the time mm. to sit there and go through things, usually the answer's somewhere, somewhere hidden in the, the history of uh, of everything um mm. 
We are coming up to time, but there was one particular tweet that we did want to talk about, through, wasn't mm. it? The, um, it was quite a yes. serious topic, wasn't it's it? It's quite serious, yeah. but kind of important. I mean, um, so it was a tweet mm. by um, Not Another Autistic GP. Um, and I mean, that's, that's, the, that's their handle, sorry. And uh, mm. so it was on January the 12th at, um, January the 12th at 4.21. And it says a GP colleague at work tragically took their own life recently. They were waiting to attend a much delayed coroner's inquest and were convinced they had killed someone they hadn't and were going to prison. The stress of preparing for the inquest sent this GP down a black hole. Um, I guess it kind of touches upon that topic that we've kind of talked about before, which is the stress, I guess, of um, hearings and, and in this example, the coroner's inquest. Um, mm. And there was another example rather recently I saw of um, the surgeon who'd kind of written his name on the back of people's livers. And I think the mm. initial investigation was like in 2016, but I think he's only very recently been struck off. And it's just... Oh, really? That, wow. Yeah. So that's the kind of protracted process that there is. Um, I mean, mm. obviously two very, very different scenarios, but still... I mean, this this is tough. I mean, um, I've I've got colleagues who you know have been in the situation. I think even um, Zanda also tweeted about a similar thing yeah, this week GMC. as well. Mm. About yeah, you know, G- he got notified. I'm going to read Zanda's one as well because I do think it relates. Mm. There's something disconcerting about receiving a word from the GMC that a complaint has been made about you, even though they won't be investigating the matter. It's enough to make one's blood run cold. I suspect it's the impact that people seek to weaponize by I can't even say that word ve- vexatious. Ve- Vexatious referral. Vexatious referral. Um, And that's the thing, like, you know, I think that a lot of this is to do with our own... um I think we all have it, don't we? Imposter syndrome, right? And if someone complains or says anything negative towards us, immediately we think there might be some truth to it, even though there is no, there may not be any truth to that. And that can really pull you down a spiral of decline. Um, you know, and I've definitely had this where I actually was, I think there was a scan and then I did a report out of hours and then, you know, there was, but the thing is with that particular one that ended up going to coroner's court, it wasn't, it wasn't me. There was a multitude, like a cheese, you know, a Swiss cheese effect where there's so many holes in the system. They somehow managed to like um, get through it, every single hole. And then unfortunately ended up in the situation they were and ended up in coroner's court. But despite that, despite all the evidence having saying that, you know, you had very little to do with it, it's actually a system-wide problem. I still felt guilty. I still, I still, and sometimes still feel guilty about you know the call that I should or could have made on that particular CT, even though it actually you know even now I know it won't make a difference. And mental health is so important, and that's why we've talked about this a lot of times on this podcast. Having through show, like if you're in a situation like this, get help. Get help. Do not think you can do it on your own. There's no harm in asking for help. Um, yeah. And Nigga, you've you've spoken yourself about your own you know your difficulties that you had. You know, thankfully you had a, a family and stuff. To, to help you uh, through some difficult times. Um, but this is the danger, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is really dangerous. And I, actually, it, it's a learning curve as well. So this this whole, I, I, this is why I think social media can be really dangerous because people are really quick to report you to the GMC. I can't tell you the number of times I've had threats on my social media of people saying, I'm going to report you to the GMC. Man, um, really? So many times, but over wow. vaccine stuff or um, even just sort of... Uh, just the vitriol of abuse that you get. So mm. if, if I've said something like, you know, the vaccine is safe, they'll say, how do you know it's safe? I'm going to report you to the GMC. I mean, nothing, <laughs> wow. I haven't, I haven't had anything, <laughs> but it does. Mm. Honestly, it really feeds your psyche and you, and you get really, really scared because you just think, oh, this is my license. And I don't know what it is, but I yeah, really yeah. value my license because mm. that's my career. That's my livelihood. That's how I put a roof over my head and feed my children. Mm. Mm. And so also the, the thing is, is that we need to be able to know that 
what the role of the actual GMC is. And I don't think we all do, because uh, you can be pulled up for the minor of event and then someone who's done a serious misjudgment doesn't get called up. It's really bizarre. Mm. And uh, I, I think the public doesn't really always understand what the GMC does either. So hence why mm. they're very quick to say, I'm going to refer you to the GMC. And then you get a letter from the GMC going, I'm not going to do anything. Mm. But like Zander was saying, but yeah. it does make you really your your blood runs cold and you feel really really scared there have been times mm. when um i've ha had so much abuse on social media that i don't want to go on telly and talk about whatever i was booked to talk about or discuss mm. something because your imposter syndrome feeds away at you so much yeah. to say oh my god and especially because i do a lot of live telly like on this morning and bbc breakfast and that's millions of people watching you and it's normal to misspeak as well. So, and yeah. I do. <laughs> mm. I, I mean, I'm not proud of it, but there are times when you just say, oh, the wrong percentage, or you might just say, um, well, you meant to say risks versus benefits, and actually you got that the wrong way around. And I have done that. And mm. I always then go on social media and correct myself and say, I just want to say that I, this is how it is. And, yeah. But then it, it goes. And mm. um, the difficulty is, is that it's recorded. And then some people use that to to mm. abuse you and abuse you i'm lucky that i've got a good group of people around me who i talk to and i've just learned to shut down on social media so there are certain times when i'm just getting a lot of abuse i'll just post what makes me happy to mm. cleanse my own timeline and i think that's <laughs> yeah. that's another thing because you can really get into this habit of doom scrolling and just looking at just horrible yeah, horrible yeah. horrible stuff and over time i've learned not to read comments anymore not to open my dms i just delete a lot of dms before i even read them because they do yeah. go into that even nice stuff can make me feel really unnerved as well so i get mm. a lot of flattery which is <laughs> <laughs> very weird at the same yeah. time Particularly yeah, my saying. smile. So a lot of people will say, oh, you have a lovely smile. It's like, but did you hear what I just said? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Don't objectify me. And I, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, exactly. And I sort of had this weird, because when I started doing Big to Breakfast, obviously there wasn't a hijab woman on TV. So I got likened to Nadia a lot. And mm, so Middle yeah. England suddenly woke up to the fact that actually women who wear a hijab sit in their kitchen as i am now do actually have voices of an opinion and she's not just going to bake a cake and mm. no offense i mean i adore nadia so and she's really lovely and lives near to me but i think that when perceptions change of how what your role is and then what you say needs to be escalated to a various regulatory body there's that disconnect and that's mm. where your imposter syndrome and your mental health really deteriorates because we're people pleasers as doctors. We want to please people and say, yes, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. And then when it gets knocked back in your face, you just mm. spiral and spiral. And as Tharusha mm. was saying, just talk, talk, talk. Because honestly, it's mm. always, it's finite that moment. And yeah. um, there's always going to be support for you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's exactly. funny though, how that commitment kind of gets weaponized against you. Like this kind yeah. of... Mm. Yeah, like, um, and so when they, they, they kind of, I think, I feel like they know what they're doing when they kind of get the GMC involved or, you know, at least, at least when they kind of throw that threat out there, they know that it's, kind of, mm. and, you know, how much sacrifice and how much time is spent kind of trying to cultivate a career and try to get through all the exams and whatever. Mm. I think, I feel like they know what they're doing, uh, but it's just funny. That which, uh, which actually leads me on to sometimes reflecting on how much do we place our value on our role? Because mm. I know that the minute that I go to a party or something, the first thing people say, oh, what do you do as a job? 
Yeah. And, and we do, and I do pride myself in the fact that I'm a doctor, but I'm not just a doctor. Like I, I'm a mom of three kids. I make blinking TikToks and I lip sync to <laughs> songs. And yeah, I, yeah, I really well. You know, like, <laughs> no, but like I, I mess about and um, I love cooking and I have all these other interests as well. I love doing media stuff and I love talking about fashion. I love talking about modest fashion. I love talking about my faith. So mm. uh, I have a radio show which has got nothing to do with medicine, just talking about people who are doing everyday things. Um, so you can check it out on BBC Three Counties Radio. That's my plug for yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, good, nice. <laughs> but, pro, but pro, I, yeah, I, good. <laughs> but I do have loads of other interests. And I think that when mm. you put a, such a significance on your role, there was a really good uh, tweet actually this week I read, which we haven't talked about, but they were saying how your workmates are not your, the people that you work with are not oh, your yeah. friends. Mm. so do not think that your work is the be all and end of do the bare minimum that you need to do to get through the day and then mm. go home to the people that really value you such as even if that's your dog or mm. your loved ones <laughs> yeah. or your friends and your family because yeah. you're, sh you're shaking your head at the dog but that just shows how heartless no, no, really no, no. <laughs> Yeah, that, that might get edited. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, just joking but around. Go, yeah. go home to people who genuinely value you because you're expendable <laughs> at work and people will easily put you, you know, you're just that body. And that goes back to our conversation right at the start. You're just that body filling that role. So make mm. sure that actually your mental health and you preserve the values mm. and the principles and don't put value on your role. So even if you leave your role as a GP, then there are a whole myriad of other things that you can do. And, mm -hmm. and I learned that. And actually, that took my son getting really sick for me to learn that I can become a portfolio GP. I don't just have to be a GP. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does remind me. I mean, I, I don't know if I meant this previously, but, um, you know, when I was flunking exams, I remember I, feel like, I felt like I let my family down and I was very, very upset. And then um, my daughter was only like three. And then I was sitting there and she came and gave me a hug. And I actually apologized to her, you know, saying, I'm really oh, sorry, right. kid, I let you down. And then mm. she just didn't care and she kind of, you know, dada and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, you know what? And it sounds like a really silly thing to say, but I'm still her dad. Yeah. And that's more important than all of this. I'm still, yeah. I'm still a husband. I'm still a son. And that's what actually matters. Why am I so worked up about exams and this job and stuff? And then I think that really is exactly what you're saying. And there's so many aspects to us and, you know, um, that we, we kind of let get eclipsed by medicine and it doesn't really need to. We need to try and remember that, you know, we're, we're human beings too and we can have fun on TikToks and, you know, have fun with our friends and family. And it's not just about this job. Um, yeah, I think um, we're coming up to time. Uh, yeah, I mean, should we end on a nice ones? Yes. Yeah, there was a tweet uh, about medical schools and how it's becoming compulsory for people to learn cookery lessons, which seems kind of ridiculous. But somebody then replied <laughs> saying, oh, it should be compulsory that we do military service. And I was just thinking of other kind of like, <laughs> but if, for your life now, if you had to think of things that would have been useful for you to learn through medical school, what would you have added to, the, uh, to your course? Oh, I think I definitely would have loved to learn things like um, uh, I, I have a, a huge passion for fashion and makeup and I never knew that I did until recently. Hmm. So I think that actually that would have been really good. How we present ourselves hmm. um, would have been something I would have loved to learn. And I'm really boring because I, I do. I'm a medic through and through. So to me, medicine is <laughs> more medicine. Uh, don't, need don't, more medicine. Yeah, more medicine. Really more don't, medicine. Yeah, don't tell this to <laughs> more my radiology. Three kids. 
Yeah. <laughs> my kids and my husband and I often argue about this, but my first baby is actually medicine because if I could do medicine, day uh, not clinical medicine, not the red red tape wait, stuff. And you called a medicine? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Like my first love is uh, always oh, medicine. Okay, sorry. And yeah, so cool. and so I think I think that would have been really great because I not that I I love learning, but then I love teaching it, and I mm. think that there's a a really good quote that I read from Margaret Fuller that said, "If you have knowledge." then um, don't just keep it to yourself. Allow other people to light their candle in it because we mm. all carry a candle which is unlit until we mm. light it from someone else's knowledge. And I think uh, that is something that I would have loved to just do more and more and more of than mm. anything. That's what about you, Thrusha? Um, I think um, probably like printer maintenance or something. Like many are like Friday <laughs> afternoon trying to print off the blood forms. Uh, and, uh, you know, the stress there, I'd have loved to have learned that in medical school. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that would have been really useful in those times. Oh, wow. Actually, that's far more important than my point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I think uh, mine. I, I think mine would be one of two things. Like actually looking after yourself, as in going to the gym, nutrition, going to the exercise. Because mm. you know, even, it doesn't matter what kind of doctor you are. People always assume that you know about this stuff. Yeah, true. Uh, you know, and it, it would be nice to actually know about this stuff. It's not that hard to. I mean, it is hard, but as in the the jump between learning about how to exercise is actually not that much of a leap, uh, especially when you come to like personal training and exercise. And the other thing, even more boring, would be finances. I'd love yeah, to. I wish good. I learned more oh, about yeah. finances yes. from far earlier on, rather than just getting into consultant and suddenly someone is like hmm, have you thought about this and it's like no i haven't and then you start to learn this massive learning curve about how to actually be smart with your money mm. um okay cool. i've got to say um thank you so much nigat for coming on to our small little podcast yeah no thank you for having me and i have to say honestly it's been a real pleasure and honor and i was genuinely quite nervous about coming on your podcast oh no, wow. I, okay. no for ages because i listen to your podcast and i adore your podcast oh. but you guys are so cool and i was oh, just like oh you. not good <laughs> not going to be good on your podcast at all because I use social media very, very selfishly. I think I don't really engage with so much, um, mm -mm. and I read it and then I scroll past it. But, um, it's been a real pleasure and a real oh, joy thank you. To be on your it's podcast. been really fun. Yeah, the, the time has just flown by, honestly. Mm. Yeah, it really has. Uh, you know, like we said, thank you so much, Nagat, for coming uh, coming on. Obviously, you're always welcome back whenever you whenever you're free. Um, and to you, Med Twitter, thank you for being uh, entertaining as always. Try to be nice to each other, as we always say. And um, let's not get cancelled. Um, have a great week, everyone. All right, bye. 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 And we've been your hosts, 